Um, just wanted to let you guys know that myself, the board, and the elders uh, made a decision here recently to go ahead and sell a portion of that property, uh, the retreat center portion. Uh, I want to explain how that came about, though, because it's a kind of a long story. <laughs> so a, a little over a year ago, I started receiving calls uh, from a few people that were interested in purchasing the property, which was interesting because it wasn't for sale. And uh, so I just told them no, because that just seemed like the easiest thing to do. But then it seemed like uh, God was telling me that just to be a good steward, I should at least look into the idea. And so last October, a year ago, so not this October, but the one before that, a year ago, October, I took that to the board of directors and said, this is what's happened. Uh, what would be the good stewardship thing to do about this? How do we think about this? And so we came up with a couple of things that we wanted to put in place so that we could kind of make this decision. Uh, one of those things was uh, we decided that there was no way we wanted to be separated from Harriman Chapel. And so we divided that property in the last year. We've divided that into two properties, a 30-acre acre section for uh, Harriman Chapel and then 170-some-odd acres uh, for the retreat center. Uh, and then after that, uh, we decided we also wanted to look at what the reality of the finances were out there, that we had a, a pretty I good idea from the time that we purchased it that it was always going to cost money. We, ministries don't make money. That's not really the way ministry works. Ministries often cost money. Uh, and so we knew that it wasn't going to be a, a, a business thing that we were getting into. This was an opportunity for us to minister to the community, to other churches in the community. But we wanted to make sure that we had a good handle on that. And so we went uh, pretty deep into the finances in that, more than you would normally get with just a, a monthly board meeting overview to kind of look at that. Uh, and then uh, the other thing that we wanted to do uh, is uh, obviously to, I'm, I had three things and now I can't find them. Um, and it's written right in front of me. Uh, anyway, separated the church out. Oh, and then get an appraisal because we wanted to see what was worth. And so we wanted to know what we were actually looking at. And then once we had all that information, we wanted to make a decision. Uh, and then in the meantime, I also brought that to the elders. And so we had the board and the elders and the staff knew about it as well. Uh, and we've just been praying through that for the last year, trying to come to a conclusion. Uh, and then after all of that information came in, we decided uh, that we were going to sell. Now, I'm going to give you my four reasons uh, that why I thought you might find other reasons from different people that they thought this was the right time. Uh, but we did come to a unanimous decision in both of those meetings in separate meetings with separate groups, the elders and the board. And so that was uh, not actually what I expected going into the process. I actually expected going into the process that we would do our due diligence and then we would just keep it. And now we would have more information about the retreat center that we own. Um, but that's not the way it worked out. Uh, so my four reasons really, uh, number one was uh, for me finances, uh, that I realized that the investment that we were making up there was preventing us from doing some things here. And so in that sense, that brings me to my second idea here, is that it caused us to have a divided focus in what we were trying to do as a church. What started out as something that God called us to, which I thought was important and still think is important for the community of Cheyenne, for the churches to have a retreat center that's local and affordable, became somewhat of a divided interest for us as a church, particularly as we then added Harriman Chapel, another church that we oversee, and then Calvary South, another church that we oversee from this one office. We were overseeing three churches and a retreat center. That's a lot to put on a handful of people. Uh, and then uh, in addition to that, I think the future of the retreat center, uh, one of the things we were, um, are, that's important to us is that whoever is running it is still running it as a Christian retreat center. So we're looking to sell to somebody that wants to keep it as a Christian retreat center. 
Um, and for me, the future of that was I felt like if somebody had that as their only focus, as their singular focus, that they could actually do more with that property than we were able to do. We were primarily in maintenance. We were just keeping it going, and that's about what we were doing. We didn't have a great vision or energy for the future of that place. And then lastly, for me, I put out a little bit of a fleece. Um, uh, just, I just put this out before God, and I basically said, okay, here's the deal, God. Um, because, you know, this is how this works. You make deals with God, and he honors them, right? (laughs) But that's what I did. I just said, here's the deal, God. Um, If that appraisal doesn't come back at a certain dollar amount, I'm not even interested. Because for me, one of the great financial benefits is the moment we sell that retreat center, we can immediately pay off our mortgage for this building. And so I just put that out there, and I said, if it doesn't come back at that level, I'm not interested in that. Well, the appraisal came back at exactly the level that I was praying about, so, um, but I did think it was important, because I know a number of you guys poured time, energy, and finances into that retreat center, and so I wanted you guys to know what was going on with that. The church will still be out there. We'll still be involved in overseeing the church. Uh, We do have a potential buyer who's working on an offer right now uh, who actually goes to the church out there, which is kind of exciting, and it's his desire to maintain it and take it forward as is. He doesn't want it to be something different. He wants it to continue on as a Christian retreat center. So the added benefit of that is we'll still be able to rent it out and use it as a church. So it'll be, uh, for me, just coming full circle that God gave us this vision that it needed to be brought back to life. We brought it back to life. Now we get to hand it off to somebody for the future. So uh, if you have any more questions about that, please call me, email me, come talk to me. I'd love to answer as many possible questions as you have. Uh, You may have questions I haven't even thought of yet, so I might have to take some time to figure those out, Uh, but I would love to answer those questions for you guys, all right? Okay, well, let's pray, and then we'll get into the gospel of Mark today. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Uh, Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who is in our midst, who's dwelling within us. Uh, Father, I would pray that your spirit would be speaking to us individually the things that we need to hear from the word today. You've been so faithful to us over the years to speak through us through your word. We know that your scripture promises that Uh, Your word never returns void. Father, I would pray that our hearts would be good soil to receive the word, that it would grow up in us and bear fruit. Father, would you open up this passage to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the gospel of Mark is where we find ourselves. We're in Mark chapter 2 and 3 today. We'll be looking at verses 23 in chapter 2 all the way through verse 6. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us, uh, and uh, you're welcome to keep that Bible if you need it as well. Uh, We're going to be looking at two uh, events in the life of Jesus that are centered around the idea of Sabbath. Uh, As would happen with Jesus, you'll note this from the last couple of weeks, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, begin to challenge Jesus with various questions. They would bring questions to him and quiz him to try to see if they could stumble him, if they could confuse him. They were trying to see, uh, is he who he says he is? Is he dangerous? What do we need to know about this guy who seems to be so popular, who seems to be doing all of these powerful things? And so for the Jewish leaders, something that was very important to them was the idea of the Sabbath, that every a week. There was this one day of rest that began on sunset on Friday and lasted through sunset on Saturday. That rest, that Sabbath rest was important to them. And so they were going to use that to test Jesus. How Jesus responded to the Sabbath for them would be a mark of how they should respond 
to Jesus. And so in these two instances here, which I'll read through in a minute, you have an example of Jesus' disciples and how they dealt with the Sabbath, and then Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are going to take those two situations, those two occasions, which likely actually happened on the same day, if you look at it in the context of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all have this, and then look at that and see how they respond, how the Pharisees are going to respond to Jesus. So I'm going to read through these two events, and uh, then I'll go back and highlight a couple of things in them. In verse 23, it says, And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. He also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that he might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, uh, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And so here's the issue. Two different scenarios, both on a Sabbath day, uh, on the Sabbath, as they were apparently walking to the synagogue, it seems. Jesus and his disciples were passing through a grain field. And because it's the Sabbath day, they're not allowed to work. But as they're passing through the grain field, they start popping off the top of the grain and crushing it in their hand and eating it. Because that's what you would do, I suppose, if you didn't have a McDonald's between you and the temple. You would eat the grain right off the top there without being processed or bleached or anything. I don't know how you do that, but... That's the agrarian culture that they lived in, right? The agricultural uh, community that they lived in. Now, my first instinct actually was not to be offended by the Sabbath. I'm like, they're shoplifting. Like, seriously, these guys are shoplifting right now. They're just like walking through the field, just picking somebody else's grain, popping it in their mouth. That's not allowed. Turns out it is allowed. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, you can actually find that law that specifically tells you uh, that it is, in fact, allowed to pick that grain, Deuteronomy 23, 25, if you want to look into that. You can walk through your neighbor's, neighbor's field and pick a little bit of grain for yourself, kind of like going to the grocery store and taking one or two grapes just to see how they are. No, that's we're not under the Jewish law. You still can't do that. That's still a no-no. That is shoplifting. But, <clears throat> which I actually would then say, well, if you can do that with the grapes, why not do that with that bulk candy storage they have right there just to make sure that, that candy's still good. Hasn't gone bad, right? But the, the idea was that you were actually allowed to do that. That was part of the idea of loving your neighbor. You could actually just go through and, and, and you could eat a little bit out of their field as long as you didn't bring a sickle with you. Because now you're not like taking out big chunks. You're like taking just a little bit as you go through, just passing through. It's kind of a little snack as you're walking through the field. 
Well, the disciples are doing this. The Pharisees look at that and go, oh my goodness, do you see what they're doing? It's the Sabbath day. This is our day of rest. You're not supposed to work today. Look at what they're doing. They're reaping and threshing on the Sabbath day. They're working on the Sabbath day as they take that that bit of wheat off and they crush it in their hands so that they can eat what's inside of it. They're working. Jesus, do you approve of your disciples working on the Sabbath day? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath day? That's the idea that they were, they were so caught up about this that Jesus' disciples were doing something that was not lawful for them to do on the Sabbath day. And then in chapter 3, in those first six verses, Jesus then gets to the synagogue after hearing, and he's going to actually answer that question. I'll get back to the answers. I'm going to put them all together. Uh, but after hearing that question, he then goes into the synagogue, likely with these same Pharisees, and now they're watching him like a hawk because there's a guy there that has a withered hand. And they want to know, is Jesus going to break the Sabbath law by healing this guy? It says in verse 2 of chapter 3, they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, why were they worried about this? So that they might accuse him. They were looking for reasons to get after Jesus. And so here they are on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, and they're watching not what's going on in the service. They're looking for an opportunity to accuse Jesus. And so Jesus, understanding what's going on there, is going to deal with that simply by healing the guy. Like, yeah, get over yourselves. I'm healing. So as we look through that, I want you to understand that the Sabbath law um, is an important law, particularly to the Old Testament Jew. I'm not trying to lay this out in such a way that we come in and it's like, oh, law, the Old Testament law is important, but it's not really that important. That's not what Jesus is trying to create here. What he's trying to do is confront a misunderstanding of how God viewed the law. And they were misrepresenting God by their application of the law. For the um, Old Testament Jew, the person who was under the Old Covenant, uh, a Jew seeing the Old Testament laws would have started with the Ten Commandments, right? And they would say, okay, there's these Ten Commandments. And then they would take the rest of the Old Testament law and they would divide it up under each of those Ten Commandments. These laws relate to this commandment, this commandment, this commandment. And when they did that, they came up with 39 Old Testament laws about the things you could and could not do on the Sabbath day. So there's 39 things you can't do on the Sabbath day. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing. Um, Finishing, that's a funny one. I don't finish any day of the week, so that's good. Um, I start a lot of things, but apparently that's okay. Starting, but not finishing. Uh, writing, and they're specific on all of these. I'm not going to go into detail on all these, but writing is like you can write one letter, but if you write two letters beside each other, you're now writing, and you've broken the Sabbath law. You're working. Uh, Erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, uh, combining, spinning, dyeing, not like dying, but like dying fabrics. I just want to make clear on that one. Oh, it's the Sabbath. I can't die today. Um, No, dying fabrics, uh, stitching, warping, which has to do with the loom. I had to look that one up because I had no clue. I didn't, I don't know how to warp. So Um, weaving, unraveling, building, demoing, trapping, 
shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, or marking things. Any of those things, if you're doing any of those things, that was work. And they would get very detailed in how all of this would be applied. And they would look at every single one of these. And then there's a whole new set of instructions to make sure you weren't doing those things. Uh, at the heart of that is not bad. God said, this is the law. They said, okay, we want to be careful not to break the law. So let's look at those laws and figure out how not to break them. Uh, for instance, uh, the road that I live on has a ridiculously slow speed limit. My speed limit, it's a dirt road, and it's like miles long, and it's 35 miles an hour. I know from experience I can go 65 on that road. <laughs> Just to make sure, I've tried it out, right? But along the line, then my kids started driving. Suddenly going fast on that road, that's a no-no. We don't do that because it's dangerous for my kids because they're not as skilled drivers as I am. And so I wanted my kids to start driving the speed limit when they started driving. So then I thought to myself, well, I need to set the example for them. So I have established a new law for myself. And that is that I now use my cruise control when I'm on this dirt road at 35 miles an hour because I know it's physically impossible for me to go anything other than 35 on that road. Like, I just, I just can't, I have to go faster because it just seems so natural to go down this nice, straight road. So there's never any cars there. So I've had to create a new rule for me, which is when I get on that road, cruise control. Now, I don't want to talk about safety of gravel and cruise control. I don't want to talk about that. It's a distraction. Put that out of your mind. <laughs> but in my desire to keep the law, I have found other ways, things that aren't required, but if I were to get mad at my kids for not setting their crews on that road, even if they're going 35, hey, set your crews. That's how you make sure you're not going over the speed limit. I'm taking it too far. I'm taking what was the actual law and applying it too far. Going steps beyond that and saying the, the things I've put in place to make it easier for me to keep that law are now law themselves for everybody else. Well, that's what the Jews had a tendency to do. They had a tendency to get away from God's original intent, original idea, and take it beyond what he ever envisioned. And then they would use that against people to prove to them that they weren't godly enough. Well, now if you're going to use that against somebody to tell them they're not godly enough, man, that's heartbreaking to that individual to take it beyond the things that God has ever expected. And so uh, I don't want to say the Sabbath isn't important. Obviously, it's an Old Testament law. It's there. It was in the Ten Commandments. All of those things, it goes back to the idea of creation. God said, I worked seven or six days. On the seventh day, I rested. That example has been there since the beginning of time of the Sabbath rest. So I don't want to say that's a bad thing that they want to keep the Sabbath. What I'm saying is their vision of keeping the Sabbath goes well beyond God's vision of what it means to keep the Sabbath. That they had taken it a little bit too far. And so when we look at this first instance where they're walking through the grain field and they're picking from the grain and they're eating a little bit of the grain as they go through the grain field, they get this accusation about whether or not it's lawful. Jesus is going to answer that by giving them an example from the Old Testament of somebody breaking the law, but it was okay in God's eyes. Yes, he broke the law, but it's okay. And then Jesus is going to explain why it's okay. Now, in my brain, there's already a dysfunction. He broke 
the law. <laughs> but it's okay. Doesn't compute very well with me. But let's go through and see what Jesus' explanation is and see what it is that he's trying to teach us. In verse 25, uh, he said to them, chapter 2, by the way, verse 25, after the accusation, uh, he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. He gives them an example of King David, somebody that they highly love and respect. King David. A man after God's own heart. That's how he's described in the scripture. Well, King David is running for his life from King Saul. He's got a group of men with him. And he goes to the priests and he's like, do you guys have any food? We're hungry. And the priest says, well, all we have is the consecrated bread, the bread that was set aside for God that only the priests are allowed to eat. But yes, you may eat that bread. They were allowed to eat the bread, even though it broke the law. And Jesus explains it to us this way. In verse 27, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Or to say it a different way, to put it in the context of David, the law was made for man, not man for the law. In other words, the law existed for the benefit of man. And in the situation where you're running for your life and you're starving, God says, I'd rather have a starving person eat the consecrated bread than have them not eat it to keep the law and die. This is a good test. Are you a legalist? Is that messing with you at all? Because it messes with me just a little bit. There's just a little bit of legalism there in me. Where I'm like, that's the, but it's the law. But God's point is, but I made the law for you, not to harm you, to help you. At times that the law is helpful, God desires you more than he desires the law. God loves you more than he loves the law. The law. And then Jesus is going to make another point right after that in the final verse, in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was given to us for our benefit so that we could rest. But sometimes it's not wise to rest, and it's okay in the right circumstances to not rest. Jesus is saying that about his disciples here. Look, they're walking through the field. They're on their way. They're not even grabbing an implement or a tool or anything. They're just grabbing a couple of heads of grain as they walk by, popping it in their mouth for a snack. Is this really the work that God was talking about? Their application of it went too far. They were more concerned about the law than they were about the people who were trying to follow the law. The law was more important to them than the individuals. So Jesus then takes it a step further, though, when he says this, the son of man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, the son of man is what he calls himself 80 plus times in the Gospels. 
Over and over and over, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Reason number one is he's highlighting the fact that he's not just the Son of God, but he's the Son of Man. He's both God and he's man. So he's highlighting that theological point. But I think even more important is he's identifying himself with Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel sees the vision and one like the Son of Man comes in the clouds and presents himself before God, and God says to the one like the Son of Man, I give you authority or dominion over the earth and the people on earth. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. The Daniel 7.13, Son of Man, who God gave dominion, authority over the earth and the people of the earth. So if I have authority over the people of the earth, and the Sabbath laws were made for those people, then I have authority not just over the people, but over the laws that were made for them. What he's saying to the Pharisees is, if you ever want to check your interpretation of the law, come to me because it belongs to me. And if you disagree with my interpretation of the law, Jesus says, not Sean, if you disagree with Jesus' interpretation of the law, Probably you're wrong and he's right. Because what Jesus is saying here, the Sabbath was never intended to make us miserable. It was intended to bless us with rest. I'm just going to say, just from a personal standpoint, rest is good. We live in a culture that does not rest well. Even if we're not working hard, our brains are active with a television or a phone or an iPad. We've always got to be doing something, 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 something. And even the things that we call rest are exhausting. It's just so backwards, the way we view these things. It was intended to be for us a blessing, not a curse. But they were taking what God gave as a blessing and they were using it to curse people, to go, oh, you're not good enough. You're not godly enough. Look at you taking a grain off of a wheat head. Oh, I can't believe you don't love God. They were badgering people with these things. So immediately following that, they end up in the synagogue. In chapter 3, he enters into the synagogue, and a man's there with a wizard, withered, a withered hands, not a wizard hands. That would be awesome. A uh, the things I say accidentally are way funnier than the things I say on purpose. <laughs> um, a withered hand. There's a man there with a withered hand. And they're watching Jesus, knowing that he heals people, to see if he will heal on the Sabbath. Well, it says this in verse 3. Um, he said to the man with a withered hand, Get up and come forward, because Jesus is no fool. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in their hearts and their minds, right? We've established that in other passages. He knows that they're hoping to question and to accuse him. And he said to, to them now, speaking to the Pharisees in verse 4, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? So he asks a simple question. Is it okay to do harm or good on the Sabbath? Is it okay to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath day? 
silent, it says. They kept silent after asking that question, which, first of all, is just a little bit rude. If Jesus asks you a question, you should answer it. But what Jesus does so effectively in the way that he asks questions is the answer becomes so obvious that they realized if they were to answer it truthful, they would have lost. He's a master at asking questions. I love how many times in the scripture people will ask Jesus something and he turns right back and asks them a question. And in the question that he asks is the answer to their question if they're brave enough to answer it. But most of the time they just keep silent because they just can't deal with it. And now it says in verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Think about that scene. He asks them the question, they fall silent, and he looks at them with anger. I don't know what Jesus' angry face looks like, but I imagine it was obvious. He looks at them with anger, but that anger is a result of his own grief at the hardness of their heart. That they have made this equation in their mind that it's more important to rest on the Sabbath day than to help somebody who's in need. More important to rest on the Sabbath day than to help somebody in need. Imagine if you were driving home from church today and on the side of the road you see some person stranded there. Flat tire They've kind of got the spare tire out and they've got the lug and they're just kind of looking at them like, I have no clue what to do here. And you're like, oh, they need help. Oh, <laughs> but it's the Sabbath. Can't help them today. I'll check back tomorrow and see if they're still stranded because I love God. That's the picture here, isn't it? Jesus has the power to heal this person. They don't want him to because if he does, he breaks the law of rest. How wretched are their hearts? How hardened are their hearts? The evidence was clear that the Pharisees loved the law more than they loved the people and more than they loved God. Because they couldn't even recognize the heart of God that they think God is so harsh and so vile and so mean that he loves his own law better than he loves the people that he created the law to bless, not to curse, to guide, not to harm. That's what the law was for. The law was there to convict of sin. It's actually an interesting theological question. Uh, Jesus in Matthew, Matthew records one extra thing that Jesus says, uh, something along the lines of, well, would you help a hurt animal on the Sabbath? And he's referencing an Old Testament law. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's this Old Testament law um, in 22.4 that if you're walking along and you see your neighbor's donkey has fallen down, by law, you're required to help your neighbor get the donkey up. And it's a donkey or an ox. But by law, 
You're required to help your neighbor. Leviticus 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 18, tells us specifically, after listing out a number of things you're supposed to do for your neighbor, it basically says this, love your neighbor. So you have these conflicting laws here. If I'm required by law to help somebody in need, I'm also required by law to rest on the Sabbath day, these two laws are conflicting. How can I both work to help somebody and rest on the Sabbath day? A decision has to be made. They chose their personal rest because they wanted to look good before God. Jesus chose to love his neighbor because he understands the heart of God, you know, being God. He chose to love his neighbor. And so Jesus looks at this man with a withered hand and he heals him. In that moment, he heals him. And he proves himself again to be from God. Can I just say this for you? The man who was healed on the Sabbath day, that was his best Sabbath rest ever. Because his whole world changed on that day. Think about that. What Jesus did for him that day, you're going to call law-breaking? Jesus loved the man with the, liver, the, the withered hand more than he loved the law. Well, the response in the Pharisee's heart in verse 6, they went out immediately. So it doesn't even say they waited for church to be over. They went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. That is a powerful word, right? How they might destroy him. What does destruction look like to them? Well, we know ultimately it plays out into death. But their ultimate goal was to get him put to death. So how funny is this? Or not funny, how absurdly hypocritical is this? They're willing to break the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Because they were unwilling to help a man with a wizard, withered hand. They see Jesus as a lawbreaker. So they're going to justify murder in their minds. That reveals quite a bit about their heart, doesn't it? Now, I don't know how that plays out in everybody else's life. But I do think it should cause us to stop and think in every type of scenario where we find ourselves dealing with people. Do we love them more than we love every other standard or law that we've set up in our life? Think about that. Jesus tells us in Matthew that all the law and all the prophets, so that defines the Old Testament, hinge on these two things, love God and love your neighbor. Those two things, all of it, the whole Old Testament. And so you can actually do this for fun sometimes, spend hours reading through the Old Testament, right? 
and look at each passage when you read through the Old Testament. In fact, I actually have this noted in my Bible. Um, I have this sticky note wherever I'm teaching in the Old Testament, and I have listed there things to look for in the Old Testament. And one of them is, in every passage, ask this question. Is this an example of loving God or loving your neighbor? What a great habit to get into. When you find yourselves in difficult situations where you don't know what to do, what would love do in this circumstance? And it puts you in some awkward situations sometimes. Because you then have to, instead of saying, I don't like this person or this lifestyle or whatever it is that they're doing, their sinfulness, I don't like that, so I'm going to separate myself from them. Love says don't separate from them. These are the ones that God instructs us to serve and minister to so that they can see the love of God, so that he can convict them of their sin, so that they can enter into the love of God. That's way harder than just saying, ew, that's terrible. Why would you do that? But that's how some of us see sinful people in the world. Let me just to put this as clear as I can. If they're not in Jesus Christ, they're sinful people. So don't be shocked when they act sinfully. Just don't be shocked because everything that they do apart from Christ is sin. But if you can love the sinner and show them a picture of Jesus Christ in your love, you've now gained the opportunity to lead them to Christ and to let the Holy Spirit change their actions. That's way harder, isn't it? Way harder. It doesn't mean you don't ever confront sin. You have to confront sin. It just matters that how you do it. It's a completely different paradigm for the way that Jesus does things. So I put all of this together and think all of this through. There's so much more, though, to be covered. In the New Testament, we have continued teaching on this. Uh, I want us to look first at Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to do this rather quickly because I probably spent too much time on other things. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Jesus is talking about this idea of being... Uh, judged for how you handle certain of the Old Testament laws, how you handle different things. In verse 16, it says this, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which were a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We as Christians now are in this awkward place where we have to decide how to handle Sabbath. I don't think most of us handle Sabbath according to the Old Testament laws. We don't set aside Friday from sunset through Sunday of sunset to rest in honor of the things that God asks us to do. So how are we as Christians responding to that? In fact, I almost uh, got angry at the TV yesterday because I was watching Jeopardy. And the question on Jeopardy is, what is the Christian Sabbath? And the answer was Sunday. Like, you've lost your mind, Alex Trebek. You already started partaking in the weed that they're selling all over Canada right now? What's going on? The Christian Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath of the Christian is the same Sabbath as the Bible tells us. The day that was marked Friday through Saturday 
but we'll find out that the Sabbath rest for the Christian is found in Jesus Christ. There is no day. And so we look at this, and the question is, can you be judged then for not participating in the Sabbath in the way that we should? The answer that's given here in Colossians 2 is, the Sabbath was just a shadow, a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So they're looking at the shadow on the ground, and they're trying to determine what it is by looking at the shadow. That's what the Saturday Sabbath was. It was a shadow of something. But the substance, the thing that was casting the shadow, was Jesus Christ. So imagine, here's Jesus standing right here, and he's casting a shadow. And they're concerned about the shadow. Oh, oh, don't touch the shadow. Don't mess with the shadow. The shadow is important to us. And they're standing right at Jesus, who's casting the shadow. Jesus says, that was just a picture of me. That for God's people, rest is found in me. I'm the substance, Jesus says, of the Sabbath. From the beginning when God created, when he rested on the seventh day, that was intended for us to be a picture of rest from work. And they were supposed to weekly honor that idea so that when the true Sabbath, Jesus Christ, showed up, they would go, you're way better than the shadow. Look at it again in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, it's a kind of a long section there, and it's actually very confusing when you read it through. So I'm going to just hit the highlights for you. But Hebrews 4, 1 through 13, I'll just hit the highlights here. Uh, it says uh, in verse 1, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. So the idea of entering into rest, some of you might fear that you've come short of that idea of, of entering into the rest because maybe you're not taking the Old Testament Sabbath rightly. Verse 3 then goes on and says, For we who have believed enter that rest. So how did we enter into rest? by believing in Jesus Christ. And then it continues down through this kind of lengthy explanation. But in verse 9, it then concludes with this. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest, capital H, Jesus, for the one who has entered his rest, has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his when we, through belief in Jesus Christ, enter into Christ, the works of trying to please God have been satisfied. And now we find rest in Jesus Christ. Let me explain how this works out for us as Christians. For many people, when they accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, there was great joy in their heart. But then they spend sometimes years or even the rest of their life living as if they're not good enough to please him. And so they try to do more and more stuff and more and more stuff to please him. But then they fall and they stumble and sin. And then they're miserable. And then they try to do even more stuff to make up for their sins. So they can be pleasing to God. And they're so desperate. They spend their whole life chasing after the idea of being pleasing to God. And God says, wait a second. I was pleased with you the moment 
you accepted my son Jesus Christ as Lord. I always loved you even before. That's why I sent my son. My love was from before you were ever born, and it's beyond any actions you can take, sinful or righteous. God always loves. He always has loved. But when we enter into Jesus Christ by faith, believing in him, now we enter into a place of rest. I want you to understand this. I don't have to do things to please God. I do things because I'm pleased with God. I do things to worship the God who loved me so much to take away my sins. I do things as gifts to the God who gave everything for me. That's not exhausting. That's not measured where God's like, oh, you have to get seven, uh, you were seven works short of heaven. Oh my goodness, you were so close. That's not how God views our life. You entered into salvation through Jesus Christ and he says, breathe. Rest in me. Trust in me. Your eternal destiny is in the hands of Jesus Christ. It's already taken care of. You no longer have to worry about that. Abide in me, Jesus says. There's a rest in that. And for me personally, that's a powerful thing that I have to be reminded of over and over and over again. My ministry life is such that I will never be able to accomplish everything on my list. That's just the way I seem to live. And so I go through these cyclical funks. Does anybody else have that, a cyclical funk in their life? Where you're just like, you're just like going all out. You're like, I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to do all this stuff. And you do it for long enough and you realize, I still didn't get all of it done. I gave everything I have. And you just exhaust yourself. Just exhaust yourself. Just wear yourself out. And I go through this phase all the time and I have to constantly drag myself out of the pit and remind myself that God is not more or less pleased with me if I get everything on my to-do list done. He takes everything that I choose to do for him and he goes, wow. Look what my child did for me. And he puts it up on his refrigerator. And it doesn't matter to him that I don't color inside the lines. <laughs> that I'm colorblind and can't tell which colors go with which. His child whom he loves did something as a gift for him. But he's never going to go, Sean, I, I just expected you to put more things on my refrigerator. I was just anticipating so much more out of he may not say that, but I say it to myself all the time. What God says is, rest in my grace. Serve out of the abundance of what I've given you. We need to rest in Jesus Christ. Our faith should not exhaust If the things we're doing are exhausting to us, 
And if we're somehow computing that if I don't do those things, God's going to be displeased with me, you're doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. From the outside looking in, it might look like the exact same thing. You can have two Sunday school teachers serving together in the same classroom on the exact same schedule. One is doing it as a gift to God. One is doing it because they feel guilty because they keep seeing the slide on Sunday morning. Which one's most likely to be exhausted? The one that's operating in guilt. But the one that says, I just want to serve God. I I just want these kids to know the God that I love. That Sunday school teacher, they'll teach for a day. It just goes back to understanding the motives of why we do things. We should rest in Jesus Christ. I don't know what that looks like in your life, but it was a rest that I needed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and the, just the power of your word. And Father, just the beauty of how at times you reveal it to me in ways that are so personal and powerful to me. And Father, I would pray that through your Holy Spirit today, you would be speaking to the hearts of the people here. That they would know where they fit on this. Are they Pharisees who love the rules more than they understand the intents or love the intents of the rules or the object of those rules, the people whom you love? Are they people that are running like crazy for fear that you'll be disappointed in them? Father, today, would you give both of those groups rest? That the legalist of heart would set aside their love for the law and they would instead love the people that you loved, that you established the law for? Father, would you give the the crazy, busy Christian to rest from their schedule so they can go through it and do the things only that are honoring and glorifying to you, things that are gifts from them to you. Father, that all of us would find rest in you. Lord, if there's anybody in the room who's never believed, who's never trusted in you, Father, today they would find rest in you, that they would would believe by faith, they would be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close.